So whenever you're doing something you want to do, something that is a challenge, you do it well. When you see it as a problem, then you cannot do it well. Welcome to CEO Brain Food. Every episode, entrepreneur, CEO, founder, and host Michael Langhout will bring you key insights, fresh perspectives, and proven tools you can apply to your business. Thought leaders and CEOs will be interviewed as we explore winning strategies for scaling a company, generating profits, and building lasting enterprise value. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode to hear how you can download a free copy of Michael's Functional Team Scorecard. Here's Michael. Welcome back to CEO Brain Food. Today I'm super excited to have some time with my friend and colleague, Daniel Marcos. Daniel is the founder and CEO of Growth Institute and also a coach, a great influence in my life as I began coaching about seven years ago. Daniel was already well on his way at Growth Institute and has helped me a lot. All of my clients are in the Growth Institute. It's a massive uh, uh, benefit a big online learning center where you can have so many titles and webinars and so on. It's just a wonderful place. Highly recommend you go there, www.growthinstitute.com. Daniel is a global entrepreneur. He's a founder, as I mentioned, a CEO. He speaks all over the world, and he coaches all over the world. And so I just want to welcome Daniel. Welcome today to our uh, podcast. Thank you, Michael. Great being here. Thank you for the invitation. Today, we want to talk about lifetime learning. Um, that's really the subject. And of course, you have the Growth Institute, which is a learning platform. And, you know, one of the things, and you, you coach and I coach, and so uh, we're, we're probably, uh, you know, compadres that way. But also, you're a CEO of a, of a big company that's growing dramatically as well. So I'd like to have your you know, sort of your perspectives as we talk through some of these, uh, some of the content we're discussing today, sort of from both perspectives as a coach and also as a, um, as a CEO. And I know that when we coach our companies, and I, I don't know about you, but I'm mostly in the, in the mid market, uh, you know, my, my, my companies have anywhere from, you know, 25, 30 employees on up to maybe three or 400 employees. And they have various stages of growth, various complexities. But that's really who I'm, I'm targeting. And I know that every one of those companies has a leader, a CEO. Typically, it's the founder. Sometimes it's not. Uh, maybe a second-generation company could be family. But, uh, but in, in every case, it's got a leader, someone who's the uh, CEO of the company. And this could be true for also nonprofits. It could be an ex- executive director, for instance. I have a nonprofit that I'm working with right now that is, uh, has a founder executive uh, director. Um, And oftentimes we think about the problems that a company has. And goodness, uh, you know, Daniel, we face them as coaches. We see see so many different kinds of problems with these companies. But the answers oftentimes are staring back at the CEO in the mirror. It really is the CEO oftentimes that is the origin of the problem. Don't you think? Don't you think that's true? The bottleneck? I, uh, if you see a bottle, the bottleneck is always at the top. Yeah. So it's mostly uh, a reality uh, in every company. Yeah. So the bottleneck is you. It's you, the CEO. 
Even though we are the bottleneck and we uh, invest a disproportionate amount of learning and coaching for us, we still are the bottleneck and we're not able to go beyond that. Very few entrepreneurs are able to go away from that. And here's the interesting thing. The one thing that makes a CEO be great is humility. Accepting that there are very people than them to do things. Once you're humble enough and you believe there could be people that are better than you, that's when you become not being the bottleneck. That's when you release the bottleneck and really allow the company to grow. That can be a real uh, breakthrough for the leader, for the CEO, because so often they have, in my experience anyway, the ones that I know, it's rare for them to be open and receptive completely. Now, they know they're in trouble, which is why they why they call, yeah. right? That's why they call. And they know they're looking for that silver bullet, whatever it is that you can help them with. But so often, it's their own ego. They're narcissistic. They're um, they're full of hubris. They they don't really take feedback very well, and so um, they have to be coachable, huh? So so let, let me tell two stories. Uh, the first one is, uh, or, or two things related to this. Usually, what I found is the strength of the founder becomes the weakness of the company. So let me explain this. If, if, I'm, if I'm a great salesperson and I found a company, I will never hire anyone in sales really, really good because I said I'm the best salespeople or best salesperson to sell my company. So they will never hire anyone good in that position. And they are the CEO of the company and also the head of sales. When do they have time to really do sales? Never. So the strength of the CEO becomes the weakness of the company. And that always happens. And most of the companies I teach or I coach, I always identify the strength of the CEO. And then I could relate it directly to the weakness of the company. That happens a lot. And is is that some sometimes would be a revelation to them? Are they surprised to hear you point that out? They are surprised because they say, but I'm really good at doing that. And I'm like, yeah, but you never have <laughs> yeah. time to do it. <laughs> Like, I, I, I agree with you. You're the best one doing that. But how often do you spend the time to do it? So hiring uh, hiring people that are as good or better than us, uh, which, which may be a blow to our ego. But you have to accept that you need to hire someone better than you. Yeah. That's a hard part. In every other part of the business, you said, because I'm not good or I don't like it, I'm willing to hire someone better. But in the thing that I'm great, that I believe I'm the, the best or the center, I, I will never allow myself to hire anyone better. But they are stuck and they're not growing because the CEO is, is the bottleneck right there, just like we said. And not, uh, not because you tell them, they will accept it. So it takes time for them to accept it. So that's the first one. And then the second thing that I really, really like, I don't know if you remember in the book, Good to Great, Jim Collins. Uh, Jim talks about what he calls level five leaders. And on the appendix, he talks a little bit more about this. And then if you do some research, there's some follow-up learning on this. They ask him, hey, how do you get to level five? And he, in the book, he just says that people that go to level five usually had a uh, death very close to them uh, or a family member or they got cancer or something. Mm. And that made them humble. Mm. But then they said, get deeper into really understanding the research on, on how you become a level five. So he goes back to do to the research 
And one of the things that he goes and analyzes is what's their learning, like what college they went, like not well, not what university or mm-hmm. what what uh, campus is is what they learned. And he said, I would I was expecting the best CEOs to be electrical engineers or chemical engineers or or MBAs or like the typical thing or the p- typical founders of companies. And when he analyzes what he believes is a level five, and then he tracks what they learned, what's their subject in their college, he gets really, really mad. Because the the number one learning or, or, or subject in college was lawyers. <laughs> and he hates lawyers. So he said, I could not accept that lawyers are the best CEOs. But then he said, I need to accept the data. I need to really research the data and accept it. So he goes into the data again, and it's confirmed that that lawyers are the best CEOs. So then he said, okay, why lawyers are the, best, are the best CEOs? What makes them great CEOs? And a lawyer comes to a company, usually by mistake or by a different uh, uh, pattern in life. And because they know they don't know anything, they just ask a lot of questions. And they come with someone and say, hey, how, how are you doing this? Or why you do this? Or why do you think it's good? And their team members tell them, hey, I think this is it because of this and this and this. And they just ask really great questions. And at the end, they said, sounds great. Go and do it. And then they support their executives doing that. Mm-hmm. And they're usually the best CEOs. Yeah. The best example is South, Southwest Airlines. It's an airline. The person that really grew Southwest Airlines was a lawyer was the lawyer of the founder that died very soon after he created Southwest. He dies of cancer. And he asked his lawyer to run the company. And the lawyer is the one that really creates and and builds Southwest Airlines, uh, Herb Keller. And Herb Keller was his lawyer. And when he asked him, hey, please, you be the CEO. He said, hey, but I'm a lawyer. I have no idea how to run an airline. And the entrepreneur said, because you helped me get the license, and it took me like five years getting the license. You're the one that knows the most about why I want to do this company and how I want to do it. So please get out of your firm, stop being a lawyer, and become a CEO. And he's the one that really scales the company. That uh, example that you're citing uh, reminds me of the concept of servant leadership, where you're you're really working to help the people, the team that uh, is there, removing obstacles and helping them grow. You wouldn't necessarily have to have all of the knowledge. They have the knowledge. You just need to lead them. Yes, 100%. So for our listening audience, uh, just for your information, uh, I'm in a in a hotel room in Southern California, and Daniel is in his, in his uh, office. Uh, his office is up in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, I'm I'm... I know Daniel well enough to know that he's got probably a couple of thousand books in his office. <laughs> yes. um, I'm probably not too far off. Nope. Uh, so what is it about books? What is it about learning, Daniel? And tell tell me, just let's back up a little bit and talk about your story and how you came to love to read and learn and how you, what's your, your entrepreneurial journey? So everything started, uh, I was an entrepreneur at heart since I was a kid. I, I sold T-shirts and had an aquarium and all that. Uh, and I became an entrepreneur since I was a kid. Uh, I remember very vividly. I was in Christmas one day in a ranch of an uncle. 
And my father used to work in government. He, he was a high-level government official in Mexico. And I remember the day of Christmas, the 24th of December. In Mexico, we celebrate the night of the 24th. I was playing with all my cousins, and he came to me and said, hey, I have to go to work. And I was like, what do you mean? I said, well, I got called by my boss, in this case, the president, and he needed to go back to Mexico City and do some work. And I was like, but that is Christmas. And he said, but I got called by my boss. I need to go. And he left. And all my cousins were there, there with their parents, and my father was not there. And I remember I was really mad with it. I was really, really hurt by it. And I realized very soon that the only difference that all my cousins have parents that were entrepreneurs and they could run their own life and they could run their own agenda. Mm. So that's when I said, I need to be an entrepreneur. So I, I did all these startups when I was a kid and really very on focus and on discipline. And it was a disaster. Then uh, during college, I worked all my time during college, did a company, worked for a brokerage house. And I also did college. So I did really, really bad in college. But my father, being a government official, he, he, he was a PhD in economics. Uh, he was very, very high rank in education. He had a PhD in Notre Dame. Imagine in the 70s having a PhD in Notre Dame and living in Mexico. There were probably <laughs> very few. Very few. Yeah, very few. I can't even imagine. So, so he very quickly grew up in the, in the ranks in government in Mexico. And um, I, I remember that. And, and my father said, hey, I have a PhD in economics. Education has been my life. You have to have at least a undergrad. And I didn't want to go to college. And my father said, in this family, there's no way you cannot do it. Hmm. So do whatever you want. I don't care what you study as long as you have your degree. So I studied industrial engineering in the, in the toughest engineering school in the country, Monterey Tech. And I graduated from in, uh, industrial engineering, but I really did really poorly. I, I just did the minimum that I need to do to graduate. And when I left uh, college, I worked a couple of years in Hong Kong uh, for the Mexican embassy there. Hmm. And then came back and did my first real company. And I realized how little I knew about running a company. I was completely unprepared to run a company. And I remember an employee of mine, she came to me to my office one day. I said, hey, can I talk to you? And I was like, yeah, how can I help? And she said, hey, I, I see that you're having a hard time being a boss. I was 26 at that time and growing like crazy. We raised like $50 million from a, from a private equity fund, and we were growing really, really fast in the 2000s. And she came to my office and said, hey, I see that you're struggling. My husband is also an entrepreneur, and he's part of this organization called Entrepreneur's Organization. And I've told him a little bit of the issues we've been having in the company. And he said, you should invite your boss to be a member. So she said, do you mind that I introduce to my husband? And I was like, please, I would love to talk to him. So he invites me to this event and I become a member of EO. And then I apply through uh, EO to Burning of Giants and then attended the Inc. program at MIT called Burning of Giants. And very quickly, I realized there, they ask you to read all this book and have discussions with thought leaders and everything. And I realized that every problem or opportunity I had in my business, someone else already had that problem or opportunity, went through the process, did a methodology or a process to fix it, and wrote a book about it. So I said, okay, if I could identify what's the right book, then I'm done. So I became a vivid reader. Hmm. once I realized 
every problem or opportunity I had, someone already wrote a book about it that I could just need to read it and then follow that formula to solve it. And usually, after you read a book, you get the methodology, you get the case studies, you're all excited after the learning. And then your implementation and the confidence you have in your implementation is much higher. And that's how you implement better and like like more straight. What I when when I talk to entrepreneurs that they invent the solution because they're not sure it's the right solution, they hesitate a lot, and that also makes things harder and more difficult to to do. If you really understand and you believe that the solution is right, you execute like so focused and so in line. Yes. That that makes you have a much better implementation. Uh, it makes me think a little bit about some of the experiences that I had when Vern came out with his first book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. I also was a very avid reader, and I read this book and I thought, "Oh, this is so fantastic!" And at that time, the internet was just getting—it was in its infancy, just getting started. But you could still download forms and Vern has always been very generous on his uh sharing of uh, his his uh, forms and exercises and so on and so I I downloaded all of these and as the CEO of my company and then I took them and I started to implement throughout the organization and and frankly uh failed failed uh, miserably <laughs> I didn't I didn't do very well and now here I am a coach and I look back on that time and I thought you know, I didn't. Hire, I did not hire a coach, and and uh, so often the CEO uh, feels like they need to have all of the answers. Yeah, and uh, they don't. You know why? You you know why? Why do I need a coach? I, I've got you know I've got these books. I've got these answers. I'm going to run them through the company. Boy, that is a that's a lot of heavy lifting. I mean, it's hard anyway. But you <laughs> you better be thinking about having an outside professional coming in that can help you with your growth and scaling. So regarding your coach is very important. I, and when people say, Hey, should I get a coach? I always ask them this question. Do you know of any world-class athlete that doesn't have a coach? Mm. And they look at me and say like, no, none. They all do. Like, they have multiple, yeah. multiple coaches, multiple coaches. Then why you don't have a coach? And it's, it's not hiring me. It's just have a coach. And I am a coach and I always have a, have my own coach coach me. And people said, but Daniel, you're a coach. And I was like, yeah, but I cannot coach myself. I need someone to coach me. And and in, in it's and as an example, you know Nicolas Hauf, also yes. Uh, oh, yes. So Nicolas and I have been friends for many years because of you. And and Nicolas and I have always tried to lose weight and, and all that. And and I do <laughs> it because of exercise. And Nicolas doesn't like to do exercise that much. So he, he was having a longer challenge than me in losing weight. And one day I see him and he lost like 10 kilos, like 20 pounds. And I was like, Nicolás, what happened? Like, what What do you change? And he looked at me and said, like, I did exactly what we teach. I went and hired a coach. I got a coach. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it was so simple. I hired a nutritionist, and I go to her every week. She tells me what to do. I just follow what she tells me, and I'm done. I lost the weight. I do know uh, Nicolás, uh, what, what, a, what a great guy, and German German heritage also from Mexico, so it's interesting. And uh, I'll be with Nicholas, in fact, next week in Los Angeles. So, looking yeah, forward to seeing guy. him. Yeah, great guy. Great, great guy. So, we as coaches need coaches. Like we cannot coach ourselves. 
So so people said, hey, but you you know you know the system, you teach the system. Yeah. Like, yeah, but I still need a coach. So that's that's really important. Uh really understand that everyone needs a coach. And I do, um I, I do as well, uh, Nicholas. I've got a, a coach that helps me in fact with this podcast, Harry Duran. Yeah. I have uh he has uh, his his site simplecast.com uh, and uh fullcast.com and and um I have a a marketing coach. I have a nutrition coach. Uh, I have a coach that helps me in the gym working out. Of a strength coach, yeah. Uh, you you know because you can't do these things. It's just too much. You can't do it by yourself. Yeah, and the day that you accept that, things get much much easier. Mm-hmm. And they just do tough questions. The real good coaches just ask you tough questions, and you just learn answering those questions. So you raised uh, you raised fifty million or more, which is I mean when you said that I stopped in my tracks because I have also been on the fundraising or or investment uh, spectrum trying to raise funds for companies. Um, that's an amazing thing for a <laughs> for a young person, twenty six years old, back in the back in the early part of our decade uh, or our prior decade. And wow, that was uh, so. What happened? So we. We started an internet company back in 1998. And I don't know if you remember the app, the time, but if you had a dot-com last name, <laughs> right. people threw money to you. And something that happens in developed countries or uh, like most of the innovation happens in the US first or Europe, and it takes five or 10 years to go to other countries. In Europe, Asia, and Latin America, there's a lot of funds that they just follow what worked in the U.S. and they just replicate the model. Uh-huh. So what we did is we said, okay, in finance, and that's what we liked at that moment, he said, who's the leader of finance online? And it was E-Trade. So mm-hmm. we went and said, hey, we want to replicate E-Trade in Mexico. And we started being the E-Trade for Mexico. We opened a brokerage house and online games. And, and we did a kind of a, a, an adaptation of Yahoo Finance at that moment and E-Trade and all that. And a friend of mine today, uh, that was my competitor back then in Argentina, uh, he was doing the same thing in Argentina. Harari bought brokerage houses in Venezuela and Chile. And he went to JP Morgan in New York and said, hey, I want to raise $10 million because I want to grow really fast and be the leader in Latin America of financial trading and, and this online trading. And JP Morgan did the analysis and all that. And they came back to him and said, Hey, we really like what you want to do. We really like you as an entrepreneur, but you could not be the leader in Latin America if you don't have Mexico and Brazil. If, if you understand Latin America, Mexico and Brazil are 80% of the market together, right? Compared to all the other countries. Uh, we're significantly bigger uh, than the other countries. So he said, and we don't want to give you 10. We want to give you 50, but you have to have Mexico and Brazil. So go and open Mexico and Brazil or acquire Mexico and Brazil and come back to us and we'll give you the money. So he goes to Mexico and said, who's the best and, and biggest in Mexico? And he was us. So he acquires my company, acquires uh, and partner with a similar company in Brazil uh, called Netrade. And then we go back to New York, uh, the entrepreneur in Argentina, the entrepreneur in Brazil and me. We go to New York and said, okay, here we have five countries already. Give us the money. And they help us raise the money. Uh, we end up raising $53 million. Goldman Sachs, Intel, Microsoft, uh, JP Morgan. Amazing. Uh, this amazing. Is amazing. One of the best rounds we've ever seen. 
This is an amazing story. And for those that are listening, in those days, uh, Series A pre-money valuations were running in the 15 to $20 million range, which was crazy valuations for a startup. Uh, by contrast, today, those are probably three, four, five million. So uh, they, they, were, they were the halcyon days, the great, uh, wonderful, amazing days of, uh, of the internet growth. <laughs> at, at that time, I remember we valued the company at 100 million. Oh, my gosh. And we were 53 <laughs> from all this investment. That is amazing. For, for Latin America, it was unheard of. It was completely unheard of. Indeed, we, we built the second biggest internet company in Latin America in the 2000s. Uh, number one was Mercado Libre, that's still alive today uh, and independent. And Mercado Libre has a valuation of $25 billion today. Wow. So, yeah, great great story. It was, it was a lot of fun, and we were 24 and 26. So, Wences, the Argentinian guy, was 24. I was 26, and the Brazilian guy was 26 or 27. So, I, I, I really i am very thankful for Wences to call us and do that because we had a, a completely different experience instead of being a startup with very little money to be the dominant player in Latin America with a lot of money. And that just made the experience even better. So that, that's how I learned. And that's why I had to really learn fast. And I became an avid reader because of that. I very, very quickly realized it was impossible for me to be able to do everything I wanted to do with the learning that I had at that moment. You know, that's an interesting point that you're making because today uh, with the with the speed of the internet, we have these, uh, you know, and then you have all of the 3D printing and AI and all of the things that our friend uh, Salim Ismail talks about in, in exponential organizations, the fast, fast, fast growth that happens and how in the world can a CEO stay up with the speed of scaling? It sounds like that's the kind of problem you had back, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, and I and I remember I remember that when we sold it, we sold it to Santander. Mm-hmm. Santander in the, that moment was the thirteenth thirteenth biggest bank. It was Spanish bank, and it was deal directly in Argentina in uh, Spain. And as soon as the operation happened, uh, it was very very public the amount that we were acquired for. So I got a call directly from the CEO of Santander in Mexico, and calls me and said like, "Who the hell are you? And please <laughs> come to my office. I want to know who you are." So I remember I went to him, and this guy was like a 65-year-old banker, very, very traditional banker mm-hmm. um, back in 2000s. And I was this internet kid, 26. I come into the meeting with my tennis shoes and my jeans <laughs> and my T-shirt. And I remember, I remember the face of the guy he looked at me. He's like, are you serious? Because in Santander Orchard, I was at the same level as, as, as this guy. Sure. And he said, he kind of asked a couple of questions and he immediately said, Hey, I'm never going to allow you to run the operation in Mexico. So I'm going to call the Spanish, the Spanish operation. I'm going to ask that they remove you. And I said, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not going to happen. I am going to give results and I am going to give results the way I've been giving results. And as long as I'm committing to getting my results and I'm getting my results, you're not going to remove me because that's why you guys acquire us because you want us to do things different. So I will send you my plan every quarter, and I will get to my goals every quarter. And the guy said, done. So I remember sending my, my report every quarter and then sending him my, my accomplishments every quarter. And I never left. Uh, I left until two or three years after when I wanted to leave. Uh, but every quarter, I sent him my, my one-page strategic plan with my quarterly plan and my expected results. And I accomplished my results mostly 
but I was very, very good at accomplishing my results. Well, it's interesting that he uh, he made some quick judgments based on your appearance. Uh, isn't that sad? I mean, you know, we have we have culture. Culture is such an important thing in a company, and your culture and your company was, you know, tennis shoes, uh, jeans, and a and a hoodie. Uh, and his culture was, uh, you know, uh, oak paneling and uh, three piece suits and ties and polished shoes and uh, <laughs> quite quite a clash of culture. Yeah. And, and if you understand uh, Spanish banking culture, it's extremely traditional. Oh. Like you can't imagine. So for him, it was it was a really really hard thing that they had this twenty six year old kid in tennis shoes at his same level in the orchard in Santander. So that was that was a, a, a very fun experience. But what I was able to do based on scaling up and everything that I've learned and read, be able to be confident confident in my objectives and my execution of that. Mm-hmm. And that made the whole difference. He saw me so secure and so under control that he had to say, perfect. If you get your results and you are on control, then I don't have anything to remove you. And that was it. Yeah, so the data the data uh, spoke volumes. Um, it preceded you. You can't argue with the facts. You can't argue with the facts. That you got it right. So how did it uh, how did it go for you? And in, in, in as you made the turn into the two thousand eight, uh, two thousand five, two eight, two ten, how did that go? What happened? So let me quick, quick story just on, on the way this finished. Santander Aquiros, uh, we signed the contract with Santander two days before the peak of the Nasdaq in in April two thousand. Um, so we sold really really high, and st- once we were acquired, now we're a Santander company. And all the money we needed, uh, Santander supplied it. So when all the companies were going under because they had no more funding, we 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 passed the internet bubble really really good. Uh. And then two years after, it was it was not my time anymore. It was a very corporate operation, and I left. Mm. Uh, and Santander really wanted to to eat, let's say, the operations and put them as part of the banks. Uh, so it was time for me to leave, and I left. Uh, I went to travel for a little bit around the world. I, I, I went with my wife. We had money in the bank, recently married, no kids. <laughs> so I said, this is the perfect time. Let's get out. So we went traveling the world for a year. Indeed, we travel uh, 13 months. And then I went back to school. I really thought that I needed to go back to school. And I applied to Babson uh, in, in Massachusetts. And I did my MBA in Babson, <laughs> supposedly the best entrepreneurial school in the world. Uh, graduated with honors after barely graduating from college. My pa- my father couldn't believe when he saw me walking on stage with honors. That, w- that was a really, really big thing for him. Well, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a different, more mature Daniel than it was uh, 10, 15 years earlier. But, uh, yeah, there were, there were several things. First, I've been an entrepreneur and I knew that I wanted to learn, right? And to college, I was almost obligated to go to college. And, and in the MBA, I was really excited to go. So whenever you're doing something you want to do, something that is a challenge, you do it well. When you see it as a problem, then you cannot do it well. For me, college was, it's a problem, right? My father wants me to do it. And he was not obligated, but but my father was very clear that for him was very important. So this was an experience at Babson where, as we know, Babson is a great entrepreneurial uh, uh, school. So you would have been studying uh, business uh, concepts, not engineering. That's correct. 
that was my first uh, learning in college of a business uh, yeah. subject. Mm-hmm. And um, it was great. I really enjoyed my time. But but Babson gave me a great critical thinking and kind of opened my eyes to the world and all that, mm-hmm. but gave me very few tools to grow my company. Uh, and after that, I left. I tried to do what the book says. And, and I tried to do everything that I learned in Babson. Did a mortgage bank back then. That was 2004. And I failed miserably in 2008. It was a very, very difficult moment in my life. Um, I was doing undoc- I was doing loans to undocumented immigrants, uh, mostly Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a line of credit with Goldman Sachs. A friend of mine got a line of credit in San Diego, uh, $500 million, And he asked me to partner with him and, and help him do it in, in Texas. I had my own company, uh, 120 employees or so raise some money and uh 2008 we had to shut down indeed we shut down 2007 before everything went down and people said like why are you closing and i was like this is going to get really really bad my investors were like you're crazy and i was like you can't imagine what we're seeing but you saw the signs you saw the signals the trends yeah and and indeed after everything happened i remember getting calls from my investors saying hey please come to my office and let me tell me what what's going to happen like I don't know if you remember, people were freaking out back then. And I've seen it a year before uh, because I saw the subprime industry went belly up a year before. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so for me, that was, that, was, that was a great learning experience. And after that, I said, hey, I'm going to go away from what the book says. And I'm going to go back to whatever I like and whatever I'm excited about. At that moment, all the trends was about Hispanics in the U.S., and about home ownership. So doing home mortgages for Hispanics was the right thing. But I remember, and this is, is going to sound horrible, uh, but, but this is reality. I was coming from working in the internet environment with the most bright kids and, and, and people with ideas and creativity and all that. And I went from that to working in the mortgage and real estate industry that usually you have the people that could not work in a corporation are not big entrepreneurs, and they end up in real estate. If, if you see the standards of most people in the industry are very low standards. So when we were deciding closing the company, I was talking with an investor, and the investor said, what would you do, you, Daniel, personally? And I said, I will shut it down. And he said, why? And I said, because I hate my life. And the guy said, but you're an entrepreneur. You invite us to, in- to invest here. And I was like, yes, but I hate going to work. And the guy's like, why do you hate going to work? And I said, because I used to work with the most brightest people in the industry. And I work with the, now the people with the lowest standards. And I was, I remember I was depressed every time I, I got to the office because nothing moved. Uh, and they didn't really want to get better. And it was hard for me. It was really, really hard. So I said, I'm going to go back to whatever I like and work with the people that I like to work. So I, I became a coach with Vern to get some some cash back and, and really begin trusting myself and all that. And then when it was time for me to go back to be an entrepreneur, I said, great, I want to go back to the internet. That's what I love. And that's where the young people, educated, creative people work. And I want to build another internet company. And I had to do it based on education. And that's what I know. So when we built Growth Institute, there were two things. First, as a CEO, 
I remember I used to go everywhere to learn and read all these books and everything. But then taking the learning down to my team was very, very hard. So we wanted to do a platform with all the authors that I like and I, that coach me and help me grow my company. Right. Yep. To do it in a price and format that makes sense to get everyone in your company. The best thought leaders that are out there, you wanted to go find them and you had read their books. You wanted to have those all up on your platform. That's correct. And, yep. and, and the idea was to be able to be able to train the CEO of the company mm-hmm. with the management team all together in a price and format that makes sense for mid-market companies. And then the second thing, it was me as a coach. I remember when I come up to a company as a coach, I find a lot of weaknesses, but I'm an expert fixing one or two. The other, I'm not an expert. So I usually recommend other books and say, hey, you have to read this book. You have to learn with this leader or whatever. And they never read the books. They never had the discipline to go and read the books that I recommended. And I hated it because I was traveling all over the world with a bag full of, with a suitcase full of books that I was giving away. <laughs> and no one reading the books. And I'm like, I'm carrying them all over and you're not reading them. And it was painful for me that people didn't read the books. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it in an easier format for them. That is video. And that's why the idea was to put all the courses that I needed or I recommend that people take to scale the company and put it in a price and format that people are willing to take them and they could pay and afford that. Yeah, so you know this is this is great because you know you were you were perceptive at that time, thinking about the learning style of the CEO, and it's so true. I mean, we're visual learners; like we'd rather watch a video than read a book. Now, that's not true for all of us. I actually enjoy reading a book, but uh, but I also enjoy the video. But you know, one of the questions that I love to ask the CEO that I'm coaching my clients is, um, you know, tell me about what you're reading. I want to know what you're reading now. And I'm always amazed to hear the answer that is, well, I don't have time to read. You know, I, I don't, I just don't have time. And it does, uh, it does happen. Um, I think that for some, they're dyslexic. That's sometimes it's not, uh, interesting, a fairly common uh, trait among some CEOs, uh, uh, founders. Uh, they, they, you know, they don't, they don't really read very much, but they certainly can listen. So they will do audible, you know, on the, on the drive, on their drive times. That's correct. I, I do a lot of books in audio. Yeah. And I wake up every day in the morning. I have a treadmill uh, in my house that I walk or run for an hour every morning and I put videos. Yeah. And I just watch courses uh, while I run and I walk. Mm-hmm. So every day in the morning, I get at least an hour of exercise and an hour of learning. Yeah. Uh, see, Daniel, you're a, you're a multitasker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But really, I, I between coaching and, and uh, being a CEO of Growth Institute, I have very little time, and that's the way I, I'm able to to at least uh, do some good work in the first hour. And by the way, the more I learn and the more exercise I do in the morning, the better I have a day after. I'm so excited from what I learned, and I have so much energy for going to doing some exercise that I have a much better day. Well, that's a great segue when we talk about care for ourselves. You know, as a CEO, you need to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, uh, financially, all of it, you know, and learning is a big part of that. Um, your family, your, your spouse, if you have one, your significant other, I mean, it's all very, very, it's all interlaced, right? I mean, and, and you're, you're the package. And you know, Daniel, as a coach, not necessarily as a founder, but as a coach, and I, I can relate to this as well, 
we're working with the CEO who finds it very lonely at the top. And so there are some things that they just don't, they're not talking about with their team. They might not even talk about with their spouse, but they're going to talk about it with you as a coach. And, uh, you know, coaching can become, uh, you know, a very, very sensitive and intimate uh, relationship there. So um, we're oftentimes, uh, you know, working with our CEOs, encouraging them. Uh, some, some of the best conversations I have with my clients are out on walks. We'll take a walk. Go take a walk. Now, let's not go have lunch. Let's go walk around the block. And, uh, and we do that. And it's fun. So, and you said something very, very important. You said it's very lonely at the top. And people don't realize how long they is until they become CEOs. You always have to have the right response. You always have to be right. You always have to be positive. It's really hard to be up there. So the question in my mind on this, and just to to move towards our uh, conclusion on this uh, on this great uh, topic of learning, um, is is the stages uh, of growth. So when we talk about scaling. You know, you have to start with something, right? If you're a founder, you're starting it on a kitchen table or as Steve Jobs and, and uh, uh, his partner Wozniak uh, started in the garage and I guess Hewlett and Packard started in their garage in Silicon Valley. But these, these all start somewhere. Sometimes it's just in the head of the, of the founder. But at some point, you're going to, um, to, to scale the business. And I mean, I, re- I remember uh, uh, one of one of the companies that I had was a medical device company that I co-founded with two others. And um, like you, Daniel, we were out on the trail trying to raise money. And I think I made about um, 125 pitches from Shang- from uh, Boston <laughs> Boston to Shanghai. Uh, but this was right after uh, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in 2008. So uh, not a great time to start a start a company. Oh no, um, you know. But uh, but I remember one of the venture capital companies that I was speaking with. I mean, and they're just so insensitive, not all of them, but some. And, uh, and they were talking with me and, and they said, uh, well, you know, this, this company has the potential of, of becoming a, a unicorn or a billion, you know, you're, you're, you've got a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar unmet clinical need here. And this, uh, this was a, an implantable device. Um, so it gets out to a, a billion dollars. I mean, have you run a company of a billion dollars in size? And I said, I mean, I had to tell the truth. Of course, I have not. Um, I had I had taken companies out to a hundred million, but not to a billion. And he said, Well, that's there. Okay, so we'll, you know, if you if we get to a term sheet and we get to cash, where we're funding you, then we would have to replace you. And I said, Well, thank you very much. This conversation's over. You know, I, I mean, you, you have to you have to be aware of where you're at in that cycle. And and who knows? Maybe he was right. Maybe I didn't have the skill set to run a billion dollar company, but. Neither did Mark Zuckerberg, neither did Bill Gates, neither did Steve Jobs, you know, and you have to have, like you said earlier, Daniel, you got to have that desire. You got to have that confidence. Uh, if you have that idea to start it up, um, you can take it to the moon. You can, you just have to have the right people. But how do you how, talk a little bit about the stages of growth, if you would? So here, let me just uh one day a coach told me, Daniel, I don't work with entrepreneurs that are entrepreneurs for the first time. And I said, why not? He said, because they don't know what they don't know. Uh, whenever you're going off for the first time, you don't know what you don't know. And that's when someone experienced and the coach or something like that could tell you that. So what I identified coaching for the last 10 years and being a CEO for 20 is that the company has different stages. 
like uh, like a human being. We're babies, kids, adolescent adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, evolving right up. You have to up. evolve from one to the other. Right. Yep. And what you feed a person in one stage is not necessarily what they should eat on another stage. So the company is the same. The the leadership that you do, the focus and the needs of a company with five employees is very very different to the needs and whatever of company with fifty or one hundred and fifty or three hundred employees. So I've seen entrepreneurs that they are asking, hey, what's the best book about this? And they just feel they have to implement the book after they read it. And I was like, no way. There's certain things that you have to do in the right stage to allow you to go to the next stage. So I've been trying to diagnose that. Uh, and that's what I call stages of, of scale-ups or, or, or how companies scale. Mm-hmm. So stage number one, it's all about what I call one to five employees. And it's all about really refining your product. It's fo- the focus is product development. What are you going to do? How are you going to sell it? All that. <laughs> the priority is really to validate that business model. And the barrier that you need to pass to be able to validate your business model is really understand the market dynamics. Who are the players in the market? What are they doing? How much are they selling? What other products are out there in the rest? So the ability that you have to have or develop to pass stage one is really marketing. It's a way that you communicate with your client or with your market to really understand how much are they willing to pay for your stuff and what they want to buy. Right. And some of this, uh, some of this uh, work that you're talking about could be done even prior to founding the company, right? So you might even want to do this work uh, to, you know, to determine whether or not you even should found a company. So if you find good results, uh, a strong market, an unmet need or whatever, then you go ahead. But you have to continue and go deeper and deeper in that. Yes, but but my issue there is people believe they could do a business plan and they're going to execute the business plan exactly as they thought. No way. I've never seen a business plan <laughs> right. that supports uh, your first contact with a client. That's right. So So that's when you have to refine your business plan that you built before and really make sure it's a reality. And you should not have more than five employees there. Then that's what I call the startup. Then the second phase is what I call the grow up. Six to 15 employees, more or less. And then your focus is 100% on sales. Now you have a base or a, a fixed expense that you have to pay no matter what. So in the second stage, you become a full-time salesperson. Uh, and And what I say is, you don't care what you sell as long as you have the cash that you need to keep the company alive. And that's where entrepreneur ages the most in the second <laughs> thing. Yeah, I, I can relate. I've, uh, what, uh, <laughs> f- what, few, uh, what few hairs that I have on the top of my head are left, or most of them are gray. Yes. You know? <laughs> A lot of those gone in those things. Yes, sir. <laughs> and then the priority is hiring the right team. Uh, and people say, well, but I've been hiring people in the first stage. And I was like, no, you don't choose your employees on first stage. They choose you. Mm. You really don't have the capacity, the brand, the salaries to hire whoever you choose. You choose. You have to accept who chooses you. So whoever whoever allows to be hired by you on the first stage, you hire them. On second stage, you have to be much more critical of who you hire and be more selective and begin hiring people that are better than you. In the first stage, it's all about hiring generic people. In the second one, you have to be very selective in really understanding the job description and who's the best candidate for that. And then you have to change from entrepreneur to leader. 
So the big barrier that I see to pass stage two is learn how to be a leader. The leader has to be able to delegate and define direction. And that's, uh, that's, oh boy, is that ever true? I mean, and where I, this is where I'm picking them up typically is in this range on the lower end of the scale of size in my portfolio of clients. A lot of the CEOs that I'm working with are making that transition from entrepreneur to leader. Um, and some of them, frankly, uh, are not that good at it. <laughs> we gotta, we do a lot of coaching and leadership on this. Uh, most are not ready. Uh, and that's where the ego comes in. Yep. That's where you have to accept that people are better than you doing most of the things. Or accept that you really don't have the time. And you have to get outsiders. So that's stage two. Stage three is what I call a scale-up. Uh, and that's when you really scale your company. And that's the right time. You already prove your business model, uh, validate your business model. Then you already focus on sales and begin having a sales structure. And you have a decent team. But now when you really begin scaling. And the barrier to scale is infrastructure. Uh, you don't have mm. systems and procedures done electronically. They're all done manually. You're uh, moving from what got you here, yeah. as as uh, as we say, what got you here won't get you there. What got you here isn't going to carry you up into that next season. So, for instance, your 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 uh, QuickBooks, let's say, moves into something more robust, or your CRM system or your ERP systems. Now, all of a sudden, you have a need for all of these. But uh, Daniel, how many employees would you say would be in this stage? So I, I have it defined between 60 and 250, but there's really two stages in this stage, what I call the lower third stage and the upper third stage. Mm -hmm. And that's more or less around 10 million in revenue when you go from the lower to the upper. Mm -hmm. Because that's when I really believe around 10 million in revenue in the US and 5 million in something like Mexico or developed world mm -hmm. or developing world. That's when you have enough margin uh, and, and systems to be able to hire someone to run your company. And it takes around that amount of revenue for you to be able to build a world-class team. So that's when you begin scaling uh, after 16, 20 employees. And you have to build and invest in infrastructure. And then you have to align and simplify the operation. At the beginning, you don't care if, I, if, like, you're trying people to throw things to the wall to see what sticks. Once you understand what works, then you need focus. That's why scaling up, it's called scaling up. And what they do mostly is be able to focus on the line of the team in the one thing or the five things that you have to do in a team on the quarter. So that's where I begin to scale. And the hard part of scaling is Investing in infrastructure, having the money to invest in infrastructure and be able to simplify the business and get all your systems and procedures from manual to digital or, 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 or done by a machine, uh, mechanical or not. But usually all your systems are manual and you have to go away from that. And then what I call fourth stage, over 250 employees, that's when you begin dominating your industry. The product that you bring to market, the pricing, everything, your competitors begin looking at them. And that's when you have to really understand how to play with competition and gain market share from your competitors. Before you're so small, you don't, it doesn't matter. 
Like if you're people said, "Well, I'm taking a percentage for my competitors," you're so small it doesn't matter. But once you get to stage four, that's when it begins mattering. And by the way, stage four, that's when you're a business owner. Before stage four, you have to run your company. You're the center of the company, and you have your auto employment. You're not really an entrepreneur. And and, and it's a. I think we have to draw a very very fine line. Um, one of the things that I coach the most is trying to help people differentiate from being an employee of the company than being an owner of the company. And when people really understand that and are able to differentiate between being the owner and being the an employee of the company, mm. then things move much, much faster. So I strongly recommend that people really understand or entrepreneurs really try to figure out fast when are they operating as an employee and when are they operating as a business owner uh, or stakeholder or shareholder of the company. As an example, in every company that I built, every company that I built, with a team that we've started the company, first, second, or second year, second, third year maximum, at least one of the founders leave. And it's normal. It's just completely normal. Uh, they were great for the start of the company and they were not necessarily later. And they were very valuable at the beginning of the company and they become less valuable after. And life changes. Life life, life uh, goes in different ways. And you have to be very, very cold to be able to understand if they're still great partners of the company, but not necessarily the best employee. Yeah, to the point of almost uh, uh, being a drag on, on, the, on the business. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And you say, you know, you have to be, this might be a friend. It might even be a family member. Uh, those are the hard ones. I've yeah, removed many of them. But, you know, we've been there, done that, and it's uh, you know, it's I have a I have a client engagement right now that's a family-owned business, it's a construction company, uh, not to be named here, but uh, but we have issues like that, and so it's you know it's difficult, but you know you have as we talked about being lonely at the top. This is this is right right on the horns of that dilemma. You've got to make tough decisions, and if these people are not helping you, and they've changed, their life circumstances have changed, or you know their vision of the company has changed. You've had a disagreement, whatever. If it can't be resolved, they they need to really step away uh, because you're on a track to to grow, and you're you're on a rocket ship. Really, you're blasting off, and uh, they they're going to be they're going to be acting like a drag on you. So as a CEO, I, I fired several of my co-founders. And whenever I sit down and say, hey, I, need, I think it's time for you to leave, they say, but I'm a co-founder. I'm a, uh, I helped build a company. And I was like, yeah, but I'm the CEO. And you as, a, as a, an investor, as a partner, you pay me a salary to take better decisions. And you know you're not the best executor for the position that you have. Right. So my role as a CEO is having the best. And hey, if you believe I'm not the best, perfect. Ask me to, to leave. But prove to me I'm not the best. So we could, you know, we talk in coaching quite a bit about core values, um, and I have a few that uh, would apply here. One is truth and grace. It's like an airplane wing, hundred uh, percent of each. You want truth and grace, and equal in equal amounts. And I have to admit that I've probably been more truthful than graceful in my life. Um, but uh, but you have to be able to deliver that truth um, in a way that uh, always is respectful of the human element. Um, and there's another value that I have, which is enter the danger. And I find that the, the, and that would be true for, for my own self and, and also for my clients, 
there's always the elephant in the room. And the sooner, the sooner that you uh, pull the covers off and identify that problem and jump into it and start debating it and talking about it and dealing with it, the, the faster your results are going to come because otherwise you're putting up with this low-grade fever and it just never goes away and it gets worse and worse. It will always get worse, not better. It will always get worse, 100%. You have to, the faster you take a decision and you move, the better. And, and, and as you explained, it's really hard to take a decision. So we, used to, we tend to drag those kind of decisions. And many times when they do come back to you, they'll come back and say, oh, gee, Mike or gee, Dan, Daniel, uh, you know, I, it's been now a year or two, um, and I have to tell you, you made the right decision. Uh, this, this is much better for the company, much better for me. Um, that's the way you want it. That would be the ideal outcome. It takes time mm-hmm. uh, for them to accept that and, and realize yeah, that. Right. But, but I said, hey, I'm, this decision, I'm done, not taking as a stakeholder. I'm taking it as the CEO of the company. And as a CEO, this is the, the, the thing I need to do today. And at the beginning, sometimes it's uncomfortable. But with time, they usually come back and said, you were right, as you said. Mm-hmm. I would love to, um, I'd love to see the, uh, just kind of a fly on the wall at some of the, <laughs> some of the early conversations at, uh, you know, uh, Uber or Airbnb or Facebook or some of these, uh, you know, some of these large uh, unicorn type companies, because they, you don't get that kind of growth without a lot of conflict and, um, and a lot of discussion. Some of it, very, very positive, positive, constructive debate. And, uh, but sometimes, uh, you know, people will lose the argument and they'll, they'll have to leave the company. And I'm sure that, that that's the case in, in, uh, in many of those. So, so but, but on those companies that grow really, really fast, they, they have to get a disproportionate amount of money because they, the only way to, to bypass this growth is really throwing a lot of money to fix mistakes, mistakes and problems. So, so when, when VCs invest in you, they understand you're going to be uh, wasting, if you want to call it, a lot of money mm-hmm. to do it faster than mm-hmm. what it takes. Like people say, hey, you just cannot go to college when you're five years old, right? It's just a mentality. Well, but in a company, it's different. I could hire 10 college people that whenever I'm a kid and I want to be in college, right? But that costs a lot of money. And that's why VCs invest a disproportionate amount on companies whenever they're startups to help them grow through the process faster. But they're very inefficient in capital expenditures. Daniel, um, I, I want to wrap up here and conclude. And first of all, uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your, your time with us today and your, and your thoughts. Uh, it, it's, been, it's been great to, to hear right from, uh, as they say, right from the horse's mouth. I mean, you've, you've had some terrific experiences, came through the dot-com bubble, had a, had a company, uh, sold the company, started another company, had trouble with it. Now you've got your growth institute. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think the whole point here is that in, in these mid-market or lower mid-market companies, um, it is the CEO that's the bottleneck. So to the listening audience, you know, Daniel and I, speaking for Daniel, I just continue to read, continue to learn. Of course, you have your one click away at Amazon, always. Uh, uh, my wife uh, constantly saying to me, what is this box on the porch? Um, I'm getting them about <laughs> twice or three times a week. I'm getting a new box anyway. Um, and my, like uh, Daniel referred to earlier, my guilt is there because I have not read all of them, but I sure have aspirations to do so. Um, you know, you can, you can listen in on audible, but, uh, really encourage you to go to the growth institute.com. Um, uh, Daniel has, uh, has set up an amazing, um, collection 
um, a video uh, video work, video uh, webinars you can take your team through. Um, it's a very, very cost-effective way of, of helping and learning. Um, I have my license there. All of my clients are in it, um, and we use it all the time. Um, and But one question, I, I just want to put a plug in for this, uh, Daniel, the, the, your Master of Business Dynamics program. Can you talk just a little bit about that? So as I said, I, I did my MBA in Babson uh, some years ago, and it gave me great critical thinking and, and kind of understanding the world view, but in a very high level. It didn't give me any tools to grow my company and to run my company. So we said, let's do a master's program that really teaches people how to run a company. So we teach you how to do scaling up, do your one-page plan, rhythm meetings and all that, how to hire better people with top grading. Uh, we teach you how to be a better sales manager with Jack Daly, uh, how to do uh, 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 your products customer funded with John Mullins, um, better marketing or real-time marketing uh, with Debbie Miman Scott, uh, how to do gamification in your business with Jack Stack. Uh, so we, we give you real actionable tools that you could implement tomorrow to grow your company. So in the MBD, we give you in 18 months what we believe is the right formula to become an expert on scaling companies. And the students that we have are usually C-level executives that want to accelerate the growth of the business, mm -hmm. but they want to be able to have all the pieces of the puzzle together. For me, scaling up, it's the best framework for scaling companies. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it's kind of the base, it's kind of the framework, but you need to put on top all the building blocks. And, and if you have scaling up and then you add top grading, and then you add exponential organizations with Salim. And then you add a better sales process or, or manager or playbook with Jack Daly. You just blow the company off. This is exactly, uh, and, and from a coaching perspective, and I know that we have some coaches listening, and um, I, I have to tell you, this is this whole concept of what uh, Daniel is talking about, building that foundation with scaling up, which is exactly what I did. And then moving in, um, getting your certifications in the exponential organization with Salim. Uh, great game, uh, great game of business with Jack Stack, uh, and the playbook with uh, Jack Daly and top grading. And and I mean, you you know, you could go on and on. And I think I think the one that is out there that uh, had the one coach out there that has the most is uh, Nicholas Off. But uh, he's, he's, <laughs> yes. that guy, I'm telling you, he has more certifications. I'm it's amazing but uh but you're absolutely right i mean all of this all of this is so great for the company it's very focused and you can learn it all there at the mbd at uh, growth institute so we thank you for listening uh today and uh with this uh, great interview today with uh daniel marcos um thank you all so much for listening and looking forward to our next episode which is going to be uh, next monday we'll be talking about the ceo as the metronome so thank you daniel and uh thank you all for listening goodbye now thank you michael thank you for everything bye thanks for listening to this episode of ceo brain food if you're enjoying the content of these episodes and are ready to get your leadership team aligned so you can scale effectively, we invite you to download Michael's newest resource, the Functional Team Scorecard. This scorecard will help you establish role clarity and accountability on the senior leadership team, engage your leadership team in the financials of the business, and align and synchronize your team around a critical number. Download your free copy today at ceobrainfood.com forward slash scorecard or click on the link in the show notes. Tune in next Monday for another compelling episode of CEO Brain Food.